Hello and welcome to this month's edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine, recorded at Colin Chance House. I hope this month's magazine will be enjoyable, interesting and easy listening. I'm Jenny and I take great pleasure in introducing my team of dear and loyal friends. Sue, Caro, Brian. Our engineer is Nigel, without whom we would have no voice. Our copying team is Sylvia and David Day, without whom we would not have a recording. And of course, our very efficient administrator, Carol. Our opening closing music is High Society March by the Canadian Brass Band, which I hope you enjoyed. Here we're in the month of February, though nearly at an end. The word February is believed to have derived from the name Februa, taken from the Roman Festival of Purification. The root Februa means I purify by sacrifice. 
As part of the seasonal calendar, February is the time of the ice moon, according to pagan beliefs, and the period described as the moon of the dark red calf by Black Elk. February has also been known as sprout kale by the Anglo-Saxons in relation to the time the kale and cabbage was edible. But as Dr. J.R. Stockman said, February is merely as long as it's needed to pass the time until March. And on that note, I pass you to Sue for the first story. The first story is headed, Husband Stabbed His Wife After Separation. Long before it adopted its current name of the Seven View Hotel, and that was in 1932, the hostelry beside the river on North Quay, Worcester, was known as the Hope and Anchor Inn. It was, by all accounts, a lively tenancy. Within a few weeks of Queen Victoria's coronation in 1838, the licensee, Charles Goodman, was convicted of manslaughter after two blows from his huge left hand sent old friend Edward Hill to the promised land. For some reason, Hill had picked a fight with the publican, but cracked his head on the pavement after being knocked down. Goodman was treated leniently by the court, but immediately gave up the pub. Then, in 1855, the Hope and Anchor stableman, a mild-mannered chap by the name of Joseph Barnard, who was trying to eat his supper, stabbed to death, stabbed to death with a cheese knife George Turner, a drunken soldier in the Fifth Lancers after being provoked into retaliation. He too was treated lightly, being sentenced to a month's imprisonment. But what happened after a chance meeting in the pub in 1905 led to the first hanging in Worcester for a hundred years. The chimes for eight o'clock on a winter's morning had barely finished before the prison bell in Castle Street Jail began to toll, announcing William Yarnold had gone to meet his maker. And that despite a 6,000 signature petition to the Home Secretary for Mercy. His supporters claimed that Yarnold too had been provoked by the circumstances in which he found himself. Yarnold's victim was his wife Annie, known locally as Tippy-toe Nance because of her slight limp, and there was little doubt her husband had killed her. He stabbed her in the back with such force the licensee of the nearby York House Inn had to kneel on her and use two hands to pull out the knife. The Yarnold House was in the moors, near where the Swan Theatre stands today, but the couple had been estranged for two years. 48-year-old William had been a soldier with an unblemished military record. He served in India and the Boer War in South Africa, but while he was away, his wife found another man named George Miles and moved in with him. On William's return to England, Annie briefly returned to her husband, but after a week went back to Miles. She, later to, she was later to claim the marriage had been unhappy and William had often beaten her and refused to work, forcing her into prostitution. The defence at his trial was to paint rather a different picture of William Yarnold, that of a quiet man and a moderate drinker who no one had ever heard making threats to his wife. 
While he was away, his wife had lived with George Miles all the time, continuing to benefit from receiving Yarnold's pay, part of which would undoubtedly have been spent on Miles. On her husband's return from South Africa, it was claimed Annie had only stayed with him until his pay arrears were spent, after which she went back to Miles. On the day of the murder, the Yarnolds had by chance seen each other in the Hope and Danker pub. Annie was drinking a peppermint cordial when William walked in. They didn't speak, and as soon as William went to the pub toilet, she took the opportunity to leave. She described her, her husband as looking very queer. When he later unexpectedly walked through her front gate as she was brushing her window sills, Annie was heard to say, What brings you here? How white you are. Yarnold made no reply, but then, as his wife turned to open her front door, he struck her a single blow and then ran away. A neighbour, Sarah State, heard a scream and rushed to help. As she lowered Annie to the ground, she noticed a knife buried deep in her back, only its wooden handle protruded. him. Annie was rushed to nearby Worcester Royal Infirmary, where it was found the weapon had penetrated to a depth of four inches, virtually severing the spinal cord and causing paralysis. Her lungs became congested and she died a few days later. William Yarnell's trial was at Worcester Assizes on November the 18th, 1905, before Mr. Justice Kennedy. Barrow's Worcester Journal described the defendant as a man of quite soldierly aspect who stood rigidly to attention in the dock. <clears throat> Excuse me. He pleaded not guilty to a charge of willful murder and his defence team argued it was a classic case of manslaughter. Unfortunately, the jury did not agree. They took only ten minutes to find him guilty of murder. Yarnold had nothing to say in court and showed little emotion, certainly less than Mr Justice Kennedy, who, according to Barrow's reports, appeared very much affected as he passed the death sentence. The petition for clemency was to no avail. And now to an article about the most luxurious hotel in Lapland. As a rule, politicians should select holiday destinations wisely. Remember the fuss when David Cameron breezed into Party Isle Ibiza and the all-right thumbs up for Jeremy Corbyn's cycling break across to Croatia? Choice of location says a lot about a leader, so I'm not surprised to discover Finland's longest-serving president likes to spend his, his downtime high above the Arctic Circle in a fairy tale Narnia caked half the year in snow. When I arrive in the Finnish Sariselka, a cluster of blocky hotels and log cabins claiming to be Europe's most northerly ski resort, it's surprisingly warm at just minus five degrees Celsius, although a thick frozen duvet now snuggles the landscape. With no sun to speak of, the golden orb only returns later this month. Candles flickering in the frosted windows are the only illuminations. In fading blue light, bold streaks of pine forest are smudged into charcoal etchings. Former Finnish pre president Erko Kekkonen 
was clearly taken with the place and in the 1970s purchased a sturdy pine cabin outside the 300-person village as a private retreat where powerful guests included Arafat, uh, the Moshe Dayan of Israel, President Ford of the US and King Hussein of Jordan. Years later, in 1983, a 2,550-square-kilometer block of land running almost from his home to the Russian border was declared a national park bearing his name. Today, his treasured property operates as a beautifully attired design hotel, with a recent extension making it possibly the most sumptuous place to stay in the Arctic, but certainly the best-looking the launch of the seasonal direct three-hour Finn Air flight from London Gatwick to Ivlo, a 30-minute drive away, is an added lure, positioning Javri Lodge as a doable short break. Our lodge has found a quiet place in this quiet place, claims Juna, a local who fully appreciated the peace and solitude of his surroundings in later life. Unable to bear the thought of a corporate owning this slice of history, he seized on the opportunity when the lodge came up for sale. Along with his Norwegian wife Katja, Juha is effortlessly stylish in a way that comes more naturally to Scandinavians than breathing, and a fondness for clean lines, neutral colour tones and natural fabrics is evident in the hotel's decor. Downstairs, Thick wooden beams as old as 500 years support the building, made cosy with log fires and sheepskin chairs, costing a very cool 2,500 euros each. Room 1 rightly earns its name as the presidential suite. This is where Kekon slept. And a grand piano in the warm lounge invites more than just a few finished GNTs at the Honesty Bar. A second sauna complements the original fancy sweatbox used by the head of state, although most of the hotel's recent additions are on the second floor. Reached by a winding gunmetal staircase, four new suites bringing the total number of rooms to 13 are modern with slate-walled showers and an overwhelming wall-size window, all oddly without curtains. Crucially, there are no televisions, no newspapers, no phones in the rooms. This is a place to completely switch off. This village allows me to be myself, insists Juha, welling up with very genuine emotion as we discuss the special qualities of his Lapish Snow Kingdom. Like Kekin, he is very fond of this place, and I can see why. As part of a full board package, guests at Javri Lodge have one activity per day included, and it's surprising how much there is to do in the heart of nothingness. Sini Kalti and her husband Ossie run Extreme Huskies, where 93 yelping Alaskan breed race dogs eagerly greet us. Only running at full, pent, full pelt subdues the impatient howls as I cling tightly to the back of a wooden sledge. Desperate to keep going, um, and one of my dogs repeatedly manages to squat his haunches in mid-sprint, sp- mid spraying deadly debris like a shorn-off s- shotgun. Mushing along winding forest paths and across frozen lakes is exhilarating, and using my body weight to steer the dogs, chasing the last threads of light as they spin below the horizon. A musher for eight years, Sydney lives to race, and tourism has become a means to facilitate her passion. Listening to her wax lyrical about the glories of the Edadrod Trail, I wonder what the grand prize might be. 
Dog food, she says. A thousand kilograms of dog food. That's the prize, and that would last us about a month. Sydney claims her dogs have a bigger engine than most breeds, and although they'd struggle to keep up with a 600cc snowmobile, that the preferred mode of transport in these parts, Tommy and Yana, the two strapping fins who assisted with Javry's new construction, lead our motorised safari on the following day. With no driving licence, I ride pillion, watching the milky sky whip into a snow blizzard as we pass neon-flashing Santa coaches on their way to the next town, which is only three hours from here. The storm is settled by the time we reach a frozen lake, our chosen spot for a spot of ice fishing, which, aside from drilling a hole through 25 centimetres of ice, turns out to be, hmm, a largely passive sport. Dangling bait from a miniature fishing rod, we wait... And we wait, and we wait a bit longer, and we wait a bit longer, and then we have a catch. Impatient, cold, and easily defeated, I head indoors to the roasting heat of our kota, a wooden teepee with an open fire blasting inside. Javri's chef, Vila, has sensibly already prepared a fish and potato soup, and cowering in the cold reality of my failing, it tastes like the best thing I've ever eaten. And although the northern lights are supposedly visible for two-thirds of the year, there's not even a faint whisper of green wisp during my stay. Juha says he'll drive guests for up to 200 kilometres to see the aurora, but he doesn't like to market the bucket list attraction because there are so many other reasons to come here and visit. The food, for example, is outstanding. Dishes served from Javri's show kitchen include reindeer tartare topped with eggs cooked at 67 degrees for 45 minutes and numerous plates fe- featuring local mushrooms. Katya has successfully collected 300 kilograms of the highly prized mushroom last summer, yet it's still the bleak, unyielding winter period which delights her the most. It's the silence and the darkness where you can be at peace with yourself. The Times newspaper has produced a compendium of memorable letters to the editor over the last hundred years or so. Many, but by not means all of our selection, are from well-known names. But we begin with a couple from 1914. Now, Mary Stopes, of course, was very well known for openly advocating that women practice birth control in her work called Married Love, which she produced in 1918. But this letter from her to the editor of The Times in April 1914 was on the subject of treating married women fairly. Sir... I think it may serve a useful purpose to enunciate clearly three inevitable results of compelling our professional women to give up their professions on marriage. One, it prevents admirable women of a certain type of character from marrying at all. Two, it deprives the community of the work and the experience of another type of woman who does not feel able to sacrifice her private life to her career. Three, it leads other women of a more perfect balance who demand the right to be both both normal women as well as intelligences to A, willfully and dishonestly conceal the fact of their marriage from their employers or B, living in union with a man without the legal tie of marriage. Regarding the last alternative, 
I may say that it is sure steadily to increase if interference with married women's work is persisted in. My own experience of three years of marriage, in which I have discovered the innumerable coercions, restrictions, legal injustices and encroachments on liberty imposed on a married woman by the community, has brought me to the point of being ready to condone in any of my educated women friends a life lived if in a serious and binding union with a man to whom she is not legally married. Three years ago, such a course would have filled me with horror. Only by treating married women properly, i.e. by leaving them the freedom of choice allowed to all other individuals, can innumerable unexpected evils be avoided, yours faithfully. She was at that time seeking to have her own marriage annulled. Um, the second one, complete contrast, is a diatribe against golf by a certain B.J.T. Bosenkay, a name that may mean something to some of you because not only was he a famous cricketer for Middlesex and England, he's very well noted as the inventor of the googly. But this is all about or against the subject of golf. Sir... The sooner it is realised that golf is merely a pleasant recreation and inducement to indolent people to take exercise, the better. Golf has none of the essentials of a great game. It destroys rather than builds up character. It tends to selfishness and ill temper. It calls for none of the essential qualities of a great game, such as pluck, endurance, physical fitness, agility unselfishness and esprit de corps or quickness of eye and judgment. Games which develop these qualities are of assistance for the more serious pursuits of life. Now golf is of the greatest value to thousands, yes, and brings health and relief from the cares of business to many. But to contend that a game is great, which is really readily mastered by every youth who goes into a professional shop as an assistant, and by the majority of caddies, although he's childish. No one is more grateful to golf for a pleasant day's exercise than the writer. All rec fully recognises the difficulties and charm of the game. But there is charm and there are difficulties in, for instance, lawn tennis and croquet. But it certainly seems to the writer that no game which does not demand a certain amount of pluck and physical courage from his exponents can be called great or really be beneficial to boys or men. The present tendency is undoubtedly towards the more effeminate and less exhausting, exacting pastimes. But the day that sees the youth of England given up to lawn tennis and golf in, in preference to the old manly games of cricket and football will be of sad omen for the future of our race. Here, here. <laughs> this is a very topical article. There were two mascots for the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. One was called Mandeville, obviously because Stoke Mandeville's games are seen as the precursor to the Olympics, sorry, the, the Paralympics. But why Wenlock? Ever been to much Wenlock? You should go. Not only is Shropshire Town a delightful place in itself, it was also the birthplace of the modern Olympics. Surely not, you say. Surely the International Olympic Committee was inspired by ancient Greece. 
Well, in a more distant sense, perhaps. But the immediate catalyst was much Wenlock's Olympian Games, which had been happening since 1850. William Penny Brooks was the town's doctor, and seeing the damage local men were doing to themselves by spending all their spare time in the pub, he founded the Games. They would, he hoped, encourage a healthier way of living. A Mrs Gaskell, not that one, objected that providing recreation for the working classes would make them lazy. But thankfully, Brooks ignored her. The first games were held at Much Wenlock's race course. Athletics, football and cricket featured, but so did the gimcrack race, which saw horse riders stop at several points to put on a pair of boots, have a drink and smoke a cigar. There was also a blindfold wheelbarrow barrow race and a balaclava melee, named after the battle, in which men on horseback had to knock the plumes off opponents' helmets. Women weren't allowed to take part in this, but had their own events instead, like carol singing, for instance, and knitting. There were some precedents. The Cotswold Olympics had started at Chipping Camden in 1612. Contestants used to coal hammer to harden their legs for the shin-kicking competition. But it was much Wenlock that inspired Pierre de Corbitin, founder of the Modern Games. He visited the town in 1890, stayed with Dr. Brooks and observing the competition. Within four years, he had created the IOC, and two years later, he inaugural, sorry, he, the inaugural Olympics took place in Athens. Sadly, Brooks himself wasn't there to witness them, as he had died four <coughs> months previously. In 1994, the then IOC president, Juan Antonio Samaranch, visited the town to lay a wreath on Brooks's grave. As you might expect, Much Wenlock's charming museum concentrates heavily on the Olympic <coughs> connection, as well as a cuddly toy version of the, 12, uh, of the 2012 mascot, there are a couple of penny-farthing bicycles, the mannequin riders splendidly attired in Victorian sporting clothes, the leader looking nervously round to check on his rival progress. You can read about Brooks spreading his gospel, including the establishment of the National Olympic Games in London on, in 1866. W.G. Grace was given time off from a kick, cricket match to enter the 440 yards hurdles. God knows who the other events were, sorry, who the other entrants were, but Grace won. There's also mention of Harold Langley, who in 1924 took part in the triple jump at the Paris Olympics, thereby becoming the first person to compete in both the Wenlock Games and the more famous ones. Now let us imagine ourselves a century and a half hence. Brooks once said, What might we behold? A stalwart, noble race, strong in body and mind. A trip down any modern British high street would disappoint him. But without his vision, we would never have had the Mobot. Well, I can relate to the next article, having just spent nearly a year renovating a bungalow. This article is called Real Life. Six months into the renovations, and I have so much dust in my lungs, I've had to give Stefano an ultimatum. You've got to finish by Christmas, I told him when he arrived with his men the other morning, or I'm going to have to start spending the budget, such that it exists on emergency health care. 
I feel as though I've inhaled the entire house. I'm not sure what was in this house, but I hope it wasn't anything noxious. It's Victorian, so it ought to be all right. I have been telling my, so I have been telling myself, but what do I know? I think I've mainly taken on board brick dust and live plaster. The prognosis for which a swift internet search appears to suggest is that I should be all right, but then again, I might conk out from anthrax poisoning. <laughs> I started coughing about two months ago. After a week, I stopped. Then last week, I recommenced, and this time the coughing shows no sign of desisting. I've coughed and coughed until I felt that there might be no alternative but to attempt to book an appointment with the village medical centre. A long, drawn-out process requiring the computer skills of a Palo Alto dot com tech gazillionaire. I tried it once and had to give it up, so I took to going to see a private GP costing seventy pound a pop. That's not expensive if you weigh up the true cost of the NHS option, which involves getting my tech guy to come out to the house to help me fire up the online appointment maker, and work out what my login is. I've, <laughs> I've so far narrowed it down to an estimated 150 possible permutations of the same daft word I use for most passcodes. But that scant consolation, as I never can remember exactly which permutation goes with what, on account of the fact that some organisations insist on a mix of upper and lower case, while some want figures, so I stick to a one and a two on the end, and so on. Incidentally, I did once ring up and ask a living person for an appointment, and was offered one a month later. To get anything sooner, I would need to log on to the system because sooner appointments are only released online. I don't care for these shenanigans. As a work colleague of mine used to say, whenever we were contemplating whether to take a cab, are we artiste or artisan? I feel so ill. I just want an easy, comfortable, sympathetic option. I want someone to be nice to me about my dust-filled lungs. I don't want someone to lecture me, threaten me with a mental health act, and force me to fill out a form entitled "Dust, Know Your Rights," or even "Dust, How to Cut Down." <laughs> But I held off booking the private GP, thinking I would somehow manage to eject the dust myself, and because seventy pound would hire a set of acro props for a day. I had an hour-long steamy bath. But when my lungs still sounded like a broken accordion, I consulted Dr. Google, and found that by far the most helpful site on the internet for queries about lungs and dust is the website Country Life, which holds forth charmingly on the subject, telling me the plaster in my building might be lime reinforced with animal hair, usually from horses, cows, goats, or oxen. And if so, there is a risk, albeit very minor indeed, that animal hair incorporated into plaster mixes before 1900 could be contaminated with anthrax. Anthrax is, it says, generally a very rare disease in the UK. And this, 
Of course, it's discordant horror music to my hypochondriac ears. Generally, a very rare disease. Generally. Oh, come on. Knowing my luck, the plaster dust I've been sucking down since May is so sure to contain anthrax, I might as well alert Public Health England now. Before I do that, I'm looking up anthrax in plaster and descending into a spiral of deep googling hell. Mm. All the while, deep coughing and causing Stefano to put his head round the door of the living room where I'm furiously typing to ask, You all right, ma'am? I wish you wouldn't call me that. Symptoms of anthrax. Sore throat, mild fever, fatigue and muscle aches. Mild chest discomfort, shortness of breath, nausea, coughing up blood, painful swallowing. Well, of course, I've got all those. So I type in what to do if infected with anthrax and I get this legend. If you think you have been infected with anthrax, you need to go to a doctor right away. That rules out the village medical centre then. They tell me to come back in a month's time. And now a revealing look at 150 years of farm life in a diary of a Clains farmer. Haymaking in the Victorian England was far from the rural paradise personified in the paintings of John um, Constable and others. It was sweaty, itchy and damn hard work, with barely a machine in sight. Horses hurled the hay wagons and the crop was cut by hand. It was enough to bring on a thirst in a man. And at Oak Farm in Bevere, which these days lies on the edge of Worcester, but in those days it was in fact plains, in the middle of the open countryside, these farmers did work up a thirst. According to a remarkable little family diary, farmer Isaac John Sansom purchased from the Five Ways pub in Worcester a total of 144 gallons of beer to see his workers through the haymaking season in the summer of 1983. Sorry, in 1883, this was washed down with 18 pounds of cheese acquired from the same venue. Looking back, it is just as well machines weren't involved. The path of the modern mower with its driver fueled by those kinds of amounts of drink would certainly be a sight to hold. But things were very different then, as a dairy of a clans farmer shows. A sepia-tinted look back at the best part of 150 years. It is lavishly illustrated little coffee table book created from old Isaac's diaries by his great-grandson, Jeff Sansom, who, as well as being involved in the family farms, is also the head of agriculture for Natural England. Jeff Samsung explains, Isaac's diary is a sort of family heirloom. It's been around for as long as I can remember, and it's been passed down through the generations. But I think this is the first time anyone has sat down and really gone through it. Whether it is the only diary he kept, no one knows, but it's certainly the only one that has been left. Why he decided to write it is also has also never been made clear, but what we do know is that it was written at the very difficult time for him. His first wife had just died the previous year and he was left all alone with two very young daughters to bring up. Perhaps it was a way of coping. The farming can be very stressful business and even more so in those days when there was very little communication. For example, he couldn't just pick up a phone and he virtually had no machinery. 
if he wanted an expert salesman to cut his hay, he had to ride around all the local villages looking for them, and then there was absolutely no guarantee that they would be there or would turn up when he thought they would. The diary starts on January the 20th in 1883, a month after the death of his wife Sarah, who died from pneumonia and premature labour. And it begins rather poignantly with a list of her clothes Isaac had decided to put into a chest. They included six nightdresses, 15 pairs of drawers, one silk dress and one Irish poplin dress, as well as one riding habit. To start the new year and his new existence, Isaac decides to buy himself a new coat and he sets about settling his bills and receiving monies due to him for hay sales and horse hire. In fact, hiring out horses, both to the local gentry and to his neighbouring farmers, was a useful supplement to his farming, and one of Isaac's regular customers was Reverend Kirtler, a vicar of St Stephen's in Worcester, who needed transport to get to and from church, as he lived somewhat off the hub of his parish. There is also an entry showing the farmer selling the vicar for 50, selling the vicar 50 gallons of cider, He doesn't go on to mention what the occasion was for. Throughout the diary, there is reference to John, whose full name was John Shuck, Isaac's one and and only full-time labourer. The pair appeared to get on well, but in October in 1883, John falls off a tall fruit-picking ladder Isaac had borrowed from his neighbour, Mr Webster, of Church Farm, and John breaks the ladder. Come December, Isaac decides to get rid of John and pays him his due wages but deducts the cost of the ladder, which is four shillings and sixpence. A tidy sum in those days. This equates to nearly £90 in today's coinage. The Samson family moved to Oak Farm in 1876 as tenants. It was then part of a 750-acre Bevere estate owned by Thomas Kirtler of Bevere House. In the 1980s, they managed to acquire it, as well as the neighbouring Hawthorne farm, and have farmed in the area for the best part of 150 years. The diary of a clans farmer can be bought through the Farming Community Network for a sum of £12.95. And now, good people, it's quiz time again. And we have an expanded version of The Man Thing. Yes, every answer begins with the letters M-A-N for man. Some very easy, some perhaps not quite so easy. Number one, a type of pea, the pod of which is also eaten. Two, a light, dry sherry. It also happens to be the Spanish for chamomile. Number three, also known as the New Zealand tea tree, the nectar of this tree produces an aromatic honey. We come on now to number four, the lower jawbone. Number five, is a mythical creature, a combination of lion, scorpion and a human head. 
Number six, an official of the Chinese Empire. Bit of a contrast number seven, which is a large West African baboon with a red and blue muzzle. That's number seven. Number eight, a hard, brittle, greyish-white metallic element, atomic number 25. Nine, an instrument for measuring the pressure of fluids. Ten, a variety of beet. That's B-W-E-T, cultivated for cattle food. Only five more to go. Number 11, a former ruling class in China. A former ruling class in China. Remember, every answer begins M-A-N. Number 12, a large, fierce baboon. Thirteen, a dirty, scabby or scurfy condition of the skin. A dirty, scabby or scurfy condition of the skin. Number 14 has two definitions. A public declaration or the list of a ship's cargo. A public declaration or the list of a ship's cargo. And number 15, the last one, an edible tropical root plant also known as cassava. An edible tropical root plant, also known as cassava. And that's the quiz for this time. Well done. Okay, we'll have the answers for that at the uh, latter part of the, the uh, evening. This is an article with a picture of a brown spherical ball. Many are surprised to discover that museum collections consist not only of paintings, statues and local history objects, but some much stranger items too. This grapefruit-sized object is one of the most baffling, having confused many visitors over the years when displayed at talks and tours. Is it a cannonball? Is it a seed pod? Is it an iron weight? It is, in fact, a hairball from a cow, probably originating from the early Worcestershire Natural History Society collection in the 1860s, before the museum, art gallery and library were amalgamated at the end of the 19th century. Most people have heard of cat hairballs, but this natural phenomenon also is known as a triobezoa, can also occur in cud-chewing animals such as cows, deer and sheep. It can be quite a serious problem for cattle, which cannot vomit, and so the hairball is not usually discovered until after death, 
at which point it has often grown to a very large size. There is even a National Hairball Awareness Day in April to alert people to the existence of these medical curiosities. If you can remember the identity of this mysterious object, then you will have a head start at the popular Mystery Objects Quiz at the upcoming free event Love the Museum After Hours at Worcester City Art Gallery and Museum this coming Friday from 5.30 to 8pm. Now something to make you smile. An Uber passenger tapped the taxi driver on the shoulder to ask him a question. The driver screamed, lost control of the car, nearly hit a bus, went up on the footpath and stopped inches from a shop window. For a second, everything went quiet in the cab. Then the driver said, look, man, don't ever do that again. You scared the daylights out of me. And the passenger apologised and said, I didn't realise that a little tap would scare you so much. And the driver replied, sorry, it's not really your fault. Today's my first day as an Uber driver. I've been driving a hearse for the last 25 years. <laughs> and another one. I was having trouble with my computer, so I called David, the 11-year-old next door, whose bedroom looks like mission control, and asked him to come over. David clicked a couple of buttons and solved the problem. As he was walking away, I called after him, so what was wrong? He replied, it was an ID10T error. I didn't want to appear stupid, but nonetheless inquired, an ID 10T error? What's that? In case I need to fix it again. David grinned. Haven't you ever heard of an ID 10T error before? No, I replied. Well, write it down, he said, and I think you'll figure it out. So I wrote it down. I-D-I-O-T. Yeah. I used to like that little boy. Yeah. <laughs> Now we learn about an industry that is well reported to be worth well into the billions of pounds. Nothing new with Crystal Obsession. Adele holds them while she is performing live, and Katy Perry sleeps with one next to her pillow. Victoria Beckham uses them backstage at her fashion shows. Now we're not talking about the latest iPhone, we're not talking about an expensive dog breed. These days, the accessories that celebrities won't travel anywhere without are some of the oldest materials on earth healing crystals. Crystals have been touted for their spirituality aligning properties for thousands of years. The Egyptians carved grave amulets in lazuli and clear quartz and carnelian, but thanks to the A-listers and to social media, they've had an unprecedented resurgence of late, practically becoming commonplace for today's wellness-smart millennials. Instagram's global footprint is living proof. The hashtag has been used more than 6 million times, mainly as a vehicle for crystal hauls. This is a trend of gramming crystals and gemstones into an artfully created layout. The industry is now reported to be well worth in the billions, with slick web stores trading in high-end crystals popping up at a rapid rate. The so-called first wave of healing minerals happened in the 70s, but it gave the practice a bit of an unfair reputation, thanks to its connotations of hippie-ish, ponytailed men and witchy women who give Stevie Nicks a run for her money. 
Today, spirituality is as important to fitness, uh, sorry, is as, an, as important as fitness to many of the young people. And with ancient practices like yoga and meditation hitting the mainstream, crystals are just the latest new old thing that, are giving, that we're giving more time to. It's not surprising, says Ria Avani, a crystal therapist and dealer based in the well-heeled part of London's Mayfair. Today's teens feel like they have to be on top of everything, so there's a lot of peer pressure for them when it comes to technology and to trends. They're, counter- they're counteracting this by falling back on the authentic, on what was. She believes that one of the biggest reasons why people have started to invest into the practice is our plugged-in, stressed-out culture alongside the societal shift away from pharmaceuticals. <coughs> we don't want to be taking antidepressants anymore, Ria says. Why pop pills when you can heal yourself with something completely natural? This is the way of thinking that is starting to make sense to more and more people. Ria says her client base ranges from the frazzled city workers looking for spiritual calm to students who would rather spend their money on their health than a night out drinking during the exam season. And although there is little in terms of scientific evidence, the therapy is based on the premise that crystals have highly consistent molecular structures that can bring inconsistent energies or blockages back into harmony. This process is known as entrainment. Holistic therapists believe crystals have unique vibrational frequencies that can synchronize the body in several ways, which is why they are thought to have different healing properties. Lapis lazuli is good for back pain, Ria tells me, and criscola can soothe the aches and the pains of arthritis. She uses green evan tree, a pretty emerald-colored gemstone, on clients who have high cholesterol and high blood pressure. Ria's Mayfair office is filled with crystals of all shapes and all sizes. She explains that crystals concentrate on the seven chakras, which run from the head to the gut, the crown, third eyes, throat, heart, solar plexus, the sacral, and root. These are the centers through which the energy flows in our bodies, and a blocked chakra, Ria explains, can result in either mental and physical illness or indeed both. She tells me she originally got into healing after going through a traumatic time in her own life where she was close to suicide, but she managed to self-heal by using crystals and describes herself as living proof that alternative therapies can and do work. Clearly, we have barely skimmed the surface of peak crystals, and in 2018, it looks like it's set to be another landmark year in their rise. One tip, just don't go thinking that it's a new age thing. Celebrities have put a massive impact on the public and what they do. I know from back in my day, Boy George was into crystals and the Beatles, for example, were big on spirituality, says Ria. But it's not new. It's old. So it's sort of like going back to basics. People are seeing it as a new light. And now we have a letter to the editor of The Times from July 1916, sent in by, no less... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but a very long way from working out solutions for Sherlock Holmes, a completely different subject, the subject being body armour for our troops. Sir, it is a year now since you were good enough to allow me to express some views about body armour in your columns. Since then, as far as I know, nothing has been done. 
But now we have at least got so far that the Minister of War admits that something of the kind may some day come along. To me, this seems the most important question of any. I earnestly hope you will use your influence to keep it before the notice of the authorities. Upon July the 1st, several of our divisions were stopped by machine gun fire. Their losses were exceedingly heavy, but hardly any of them from high explosives. The distance to Traverse was only about 250 yards. The problem, therefore, is to render a body of men reasonably immune to bullets fired at that range. The German first-line trenches were thinly held so that once across the open, our infantry would have had no difficulty whatsoever. Sir, I would venture to say that if three intelligent metal workers were put together in consultation, they would in a few days produce a shield which would take the greater part of those men safely across. We have definite facts to go on. A shield of steel of 7 sixteenths of an inch would stop a point-blank bullet. Far more, it will stop one which strikes it obliquely. Suppose that such a shield, fashioned like that of the Roman soldier, say two feet broad, three feet deep, it is heavy, over 30 pounds in weight, but what then? The man hasn't got far to go. He's got the whole day before him. A mile in a day is good progress as modern battles go. What does it matter then if he has to carry a heavy shield? Suppose the first line of stormers carried such shields. Their only other armament would be a bag of bombs. With this, they'd clear up the machine guns. The second wave of attack with rifles, possibly without shields, would then come along, occupy and clean up the trench, while the heavily armed infantry would, after arrest, advance upon the next one. Of course, men would be hit about the legs and arms. But I venture to say we should not again see British divisions held up by machine guns and shrapnel. Why can't it be tried at once? Nothing elaborate is needed. Just so many sheets of steel cut to size furnished with a double thong for arm grip. Shields are evidently better than body armour since they can be turned in any direction or form a screen for a sniper. The present private contrivances seem inadequate. I can well understand that those men who can afford to buy them would shrink from using a protection which their comrades do not possess. Yet I have seen letters in which men have declared they owed their lives to these primitive shields. Let the experiment be made of arming a whole battalion with proper ones, and above all, let it be done at once. The editor noted, the first tanks had been demonstrated to the army command in great secrecy five months earlier and then made their first appearance on the battlefield in September 1916. I well remember five years ago I was in Worcester. When I knew I was coming here again, I said I should like to meet old friends and after only half an hour here, I met many old friends. For many years, the Odeon competed for cinema audiences with two other major venues in the city centre, the Scala in Angel Place and the Gaumont, which had opened in 1935 and stood almost opposite it in Fourgate Street. Of the three, only the Odeon survives as a multi-screen cinema. The Scala site is now an amusement centre, while the Gaumont has long been a bingo venue. 
However, of the trio, the Gaumont has by far the more fascinating past. With its large stale, sorry, with its large stage, it hosted many touring pop shows in the 60s and 70s. Stars like Rod Stewart, Cliff Richard, David Bowie, Queen, even the Beatles and the Rolling Stones belted out classics from its stage. But probably the venue's ultimate claim to fame is that it featured on the first and, as it turned out, last British tour by American rock and roll star Buddy Holly and the Crickets. The group appeared there on Tuesday, March the 11th, 1958, playing classics like Oh Boy, That'll Be the Day and Peggy Sue. Less than a year later, at the height of his fame, Buddy was killed in a plane crash. My colleague, Mike Grundy, was actually there on concert night, although whether or not he wrote the report in next week's Worcester Evening News and Times, I'm not sure. Anyway, described the group as a trio of energetic young men whose popularity soared with the audibility of their ear-splitting arrangements. One thing was for sure, they were certainly not Valerie Hobson. How to look fresh the morning after the night before. Back in my 20s, my best friend and I would joke about the curious phenomenon that is booze bloom. We'd notice that on mornings after too many Jagermeisters and too little sleep, our skin wasn't just good, but freakishly good. Any budding imperfections would have retreated, too starved of moisture to carry through with their threats, and the alcoholic flush across our cheeks was fresher than anything even Laura Mercier could devise. Of course, we'd probably woken up fully made up, and we were 20. God knows I haven't enjoyed a booze bloom hangover in a decade, and consequently most Decembers have been spent with a fear of waking up looking like a cross between a walking dead cast member, <coughs> excuse me, and one of those Kate Moss-looking ropey pap pictures women pass around now salons. Because blotchy skin can easily be revived with one spritz of Elizabeth Arden's eight-hour miracle hydrating mist. Basically, a fresh face in a bottle. But post-party eyes are a problem and a dead giveaway. Small, swollen, red and roomy, they can't be disguised with any amount of touche clay and will have you looking like a myopic subterranean mammal for the whole of the festive season. Unless, of course, you wage war. Unless, along with your usual party season kit, the Nurofen, the Milk Thistle, the Barocca, and my favourite new supplement, Evermore's More, Glow, which boosts the immune system while promoting a flatter stomach and radiant skin, you stock up on some of the most powerful and efficient party eye preventers out there. With all available within reach, you might even achieve the heady heights of booze bloom once again. And now a how-to article, How to Be a Champion Dog Sledder. I used to own five bakeries in a ski resort in the French Alps near Mont Blanc. I traveled all over learning my craft, from Paris to the United States, and I even won a competition in 2000 to find the best baker in France. Baking really was a passion of mine. But one morning, I woke up, I was just 25, 
and I just stopped finding it a pleasure. It was then that I decided that I needed to make a change. So I went traveling to Canada with my wife and my three children, and I happened to come across dog sledding as a sport. I had never encountered it before, and I remember thinking how wonderful it seemed, the nature, the dogs, the sheer power of it. And now it is simply my whole life. So how did it begin? It began as a hobby. I adopted one dog, then a second, and before I knew it, I had a whole pack and that I would take sledding back to the ski resort. I sought the advice of professionals in the dog sledding community in France and abroad, and I looked at how they sled, and I learned about how to train the dogs and what is the best food to give them, as well as about the various competitions across Europe and Scandinavia. In 2008, I decided to sell my bakeries and to embrace mushing, the term for sledding dogs powered by dogs. Full-time, training and competing in races all around the world, but in particularly in France and in Norway. My wife and children are completely behind it, and there's a real sense of adventure to mushing. I have progressed since then because I love to win, and for me, it's always about getting better and reaching the next stage and the next championship. The first time I participated in a race in 2012, I won. I came 7th, 2nd and 3rd in the Lagrande um, competition in Mont Blanc. And then last year, I won it. It is really the most important race in our industry. I didn't grow up around dogs and I didn't have a particular affinity with them either. But I have so grown to love mine. I have almost 40 now. I use a crossbreed, a mix of Alaskan Huskies and hunting dogs. And because they are known for the endurance and strength and loyalties, the best mushers really have to learn that dogs would trust slowly. I take each step gradually and I develop a relationship with the individual dog. They all have their own unique personalities. You build up trust by playing games repeatedly. The hours in baking were hard and long and this is no different. There's no respite even in the summer. All of my day and my family's days goes into caring for the dogs and travelling to competitions. The kids each have their own dog that they take care of. The best part of being a musher is the solitude. I love being alone with the animals. I can work as my own boss, doing things my way, developing my own training techniques, finding out what works and what doesn't. I love being able to work in nature and it allows me to think and to lead a really healthy life. There is nothing better than feeling the wind fly past you as you steer your dog through the mountains, fully in charge. The following letter was sent to his mother by a young officer from the front line in Flanders, July 1917. This followed closely on from the fact that this young man's elder brother had also had been killed in his very first months of fighting. I find the letter quite poignant and quite unusual. Mother, in England there seems to be a general belief that nothing but every manageable hardship and horror is connected with the letters BEF. Looking at these letters, people only see bully beef, dugout, shell holes, mud and the eternal routine of frontline life. True enough, these conditions do prevail very often, but in between whiles they are somewhat mitigated by 
the most unexpected corners. The other day we took over from a well-known Scottish regiment whose reputation for making themselves comfortable was well known throughout the division and when I went to examine my future abode I found everything up to the standard which I'd anticipated. There was an old oak table in the middle of the dugout and a shell case filled with flowers, not just ordinary blossoms but Madonna, lilies, mignonette and roses. This vase, if I may so term the receptacle, overshadowed all else. By its presence changed the whole atmosphere, the perfume reminding me of home. What greater joy or luxury is there for any of us than such a memory? Having duly appreciated this most unexpected corner, I inquired where the flowers had been gathered, was told they'd come from the utterly ruined village of Farm Pool close by. At once I set out to explore and verify this information. Sure enough, between piles of bricks, shell holes, dirt and every sort of debris, suddenly there was a rose in full bloom that smiled at me, a lily wafting its delicious scent, seeming to say how it had defied the destroyer and all the frightfulness. In each corner where I saw a blossoming flower or even a ripening fruit, I seemed to realise a scene belonging to this unhappy village in peaceful days. Imagination might well lose her way in the paths of chivalry and romance perhaps quite unknown to the inhabitants of Fonpou. I meandered on through the village until I struck a trench leading up to the front line. This I followed for a while until quite suddenly I was confronted by a brilliancy which seemed to me one of the most perfect bits of colour I've ever seen. Amongst the innumerable shell holes there was a small patch of ground absolutely carpeted with buttercups over which blazed bright red poppies intermixed with the bluest of cornflowers. Here was a really glorious corner. How quickly came in memories of home. No one, however hardened by the horrors of war, could pass that spot without a smile or a happy thought. Perhaps it's the contrast of the perfection of these odd corners with the sordiness of all around them that makes them of such inestimable value. Some such corners exist throughout France, even in the front-line trenches. It may not be flowers, it may only be the corner of a field or a barn, just perhaps some spoken word or a chance meeting. No matter what it is, if it brings back a happy memory or reminds one of home, it's like a jewel in a crown of thorns, giving promise of another crown and of days to come, wherein, under other circumstances, we may be more worthy of the wearing. And here's some did you knows. The Olympic flag's colours are always red, black, blue, green and yellow rings on a field of white. This is because at least one of those colours appears on the flag of every nation on the planet. In 18th century England, gambling, den, del, sorry, gambling dens employed someone whose job was to swallow the dice if there was a police raid. There are 336 dimples on a regulation golf ball. The moon is moving away from the earth at a tiny, although measurable, rate every year. 
85 million years ago, it was orbiting the Earth about 35 feet from the planet's surface. Leonardo da Vinci invented scissors. The cruise liner Queen Elizabeth II moves only six inches for every gallon of fuel it burns. The electric chair was invented by a dentist. The microwave was invented after a researcher walked by a radar tube and the chocolate bar in his pocket melted. The phase rule of thumb is derived from an old English law which stated that you couldn't bear your sorry you couldn't beat your wife with anything wider than your thumb. <laughs> the term the whole nine yards came from World War II fighter pilots in the South Pacific. When arming their aeroplanes on the ground, the .50 caliber machine gun ammo belts measured exactly 24, sorry, 27 feet before being loaded into the fuselage. If the pilots firing all their ammo at a target, it got the whole nine yards. And the typical UK household spends 1.9 million pounds over the course of a lifetime. A report suggested. Helping hands for hedgehogs. <clears throat> Hedgehog numbers have declined in recent years, perhaps by as much as 50% in areas such as East Anglia, though they're not doing well anywhere, with the possible exception of the Hebrides. There is a suggestion that urban hedgehogs are doing somewhat better than their country cousins. The fall in numbers in the country is probably associated with the loss of pasture and increase of arable farming. Flooding that has occurred in some years will not have helped their situation. In towns, the hedgehogs seem to prefer cemeteries, allotments, playing fields and large gardens. Many large gardens have been lost to new housing in recent years and the houses often come with decking or patios which are not good hunting grounds for the beetles, worms, slugs etc which form much of a hedgehog's diet. Hedgehogs can range over several gardens and may cover about half a mile a night. It's not all going the urban hedgehog's way though. In recent times, we have had warm winters that deprive hedgehogs of a clear-cut signal to start hibernation or to stay sleeping. They should hibernate from November and emerge again in April, but many are active in the winter months and do not lay down enough fat to keep them going through the lean times. Another factor that may be affecting them is the use of rodenticides, rat poisons such as warfarin, as, as hedgehogs eat the bait too. They may also kill diseased rodents or scavenge their bodies, thus ingesting chemicals. Because hedgehogs eat so many things, they probably end up with a strange cocktail of insect, insecticides and slug pellets, etc. from our gardens. You can give a hedgehog a helping hand by checking that your garden is hedgehog friendly with a few simple measures. For example, make sure they can come and go to adjacent gardens easily and ensure that there are no empty food cans or plastic pots 
on which they could lacerate themselves or get stuck. For more information, if you're interested on hedgehog-friendly gardens, visit the hedgehog.co.uk forward slash how to help hedgehogs forward splash splash dangers. 68 years ago to the day, January the 6th, 1950, film star Glamour descended on Worcester to help lift the city out of the depressive cloud which had descended on the nation in the aftermath of the Second World War. As flashlights popped and crowds lined the pavements, a long black limousine drove up Fulgate Street and out stepped actress Valerie Hobson, here to mark the opening of the Odeon Cinema. Work on the site, which lies next door but one to Fulgate Street Railway Bridge and had previously been occupied by the Silver Cinema, had been delayed by the war, and now the project had been completed. It was a major event for Worcester. This was still the golden age of the cinema, and its stars were idolised. As well as a capacity audience of 1,700 inside the Odeon, a crowd of more than 5,000 people packed the streets outside, and a line of very substantial officers of the Worcester City Constabulary were on duty to hold back the surging fans. Miss Hobson was accompanied by child actor John Howard Davies. The pair had starred in the film shown that night, The Rocking Horse Winner and although there was an apology from her leading man and producer John Mills. She was welcomed by the new cinema's manager, John B., who was himself an accomplished theatre organist, and the venue was officially opened by the Mayor of Worcester, T.S. Bennett. When Miss Hobson appeared on stage prior to the showing of the feature film, she was given a thunderous reception. She was wearing a full-length gold lame gown and a choker of five rows of pearls. According to Barrow's Worcester Journal film, crit- film critic, she looked extremely attractive. Miss Hobson said she was thrilled to be standing on the stage of the new Odeon, the first to be opened since the war, and told the audience they were about to see her in a beastly part. She apologised to young John for being such a beastly and foul ma- mother, and he replied, Oh, that's okay, Mommy. I'll just promise not to break the drawing room windows again with my cricket bat. <laughs> Now your eagerly awaited answers to this quiz. And it's a man thing, remember. Number one was a type of pea, the pot of which is also eaten. That, of course, is mange too. The light dry sherry, which is also the Spanish for chamomile, manzanilla. Also known as the New Zealand tea tree, the nectar of this tree produces aromatic honey, manuka, M-A-N-U-K-A. Number four, the lower jawbone. That's the mandible. Five, the mythical creature, combination of lion, scorpion and a human head, is a manticore. M-A-N-T-I-C-O-R-E. Number six, an official of the Chinese Empire, the Mandarin. Seven was the large West African baboon with a red and blue muzzle. That's a mandrel. M-A-N-D-R-I-L-L. Number eight... The hard, brittle, greyish-white metallic element, atomic number 25, 
is manganese. Then we come to the instrument, number nine. The instrument for measuring the pressure of fluids is a manometer. A manometer. And number ten, the variety of beet cultivated for cattle food is a mangle or a mangle wurzel. We come to number 11. A former ruling class in China were the Manchu, M-A-N-C-H-U. Number 12, a large, fierce baboon we've already had. I'm sorry, I forgot about that one. That was the mandrel. But number 13, the dirty, scabby or scruffy, scurfy condition of the skin, mange. M-A-N-G-E. Number 14, a public declaration or the list of a ship's cargo is the manifest. And finally, number 15, an edible tropical root plant, also known as cassava, is manioc. Well, I hope you all got all of those. <laughs> Jody Clark, 36, a coin designer at the Royal Mint, can still remember the day in 2014 when he beat his colleagues in the biggest competition of his life to design the portrait of the Queen that would be stamped on all British coins. I thought I'd give it a go, and I'm so glad I did, he says. It was given, he was given a photograph of the Queen upon which he was supposed to base his design, but decided to find a different, less formal portrait to work from. I gathered shots from the internet instead, he said. I wanted to find one where the Queen looked more relaxed in a bit more of a natural setting. The portrait of the Queen previously used on coins was, decide, was designed by sculptor Ian Rank Broadley in 1998, but since 200 and, sorry, 2015, every coin had been stamped with Clark's portrait, including the brand-new 12-sided pound coin, which went into circulation on the 28th of March. Today, Clark was still working as one of the eight coin designers at the Royal Mint in Clantristant. I'm sure I haven't pronounced that right, in South Wales. Sorry, what is it? Clantristant. Thank you. <laughs> in uh, South Wales. And he's currently working on a series of engravings entitled The Queen's Beasts, which will be struck into silver and gold-proof coins. First, he sketches an image using pencil and paper, then transposes it onto a computer using ArtCam, a program also used for designing woodwork. It's like sculpturing clay, exclaims Jody. He swipes the sketch to create depth, turning the flat portrait into a three-dimensional one. Next, he sends the digital portrait to milling machines that is fitted with a tiny drill head measuring one micron, a millionth of a meter. This is used to engrave the die, effectively a stamp made of soft steel to impress the portrait onto all the coins. Next, Clark and his team do a test run. We sit together as the first sample coins arrive to make sure they're up to standard. That's pretty exciting to see, he says. When he's happy with the die, the coins are stamped in bulk. The die can strike up to 350 coins a minute 
and has a lifespan of 3,000, sorry, 300,000 coins before it needs to be replaced. Producing the coins in a long process, said Clark. I'm used to it now, but I'm still pretty cool. It's still pretty cool to see my design on loose change. And now 30 tips for a happier life, some of which you may want to take with a pinch of salt. Your shoes are the first thing people subconsciously notice about you. So wear nice shoes. If you sit for more than 11 hours a day, there's a 50% chance you'll die within the next three years. That's cheerful. There are at least six people in the world who look exactly like you. And there's a 9% chance that you'll meet one of them in your lifetime. Sleeping without a pillow reduces back pain and keeps your spine stronger. A person's height is determined by their father and their weight is determined by their mother. If a part of your body falls asleep, you can almost always wake it up by shaking your head. There are three things the human brain cannot resist noticing. Food, attractive people and danger. Right-handed people tend to chew food on their right side. Putting dry tea bags in gym bags or smelly shoes will absorb the unpleasant odour. According to Albert Einstein, if honeybees were to disappear from Earth, humans would be dead within four years. There are so many kinds of apples that if you ate a new apple every day, it would take over 20 years to try them all. You can survive without eating for weeks, but you will only live 11 days without sleeping. People who laugh a lot are healthier than those who don't. <coughs> Excuse me. Laziness and inactivity kills just as many people as smoking. A human brain has a capacity to store five times as much information as Wikipedia. And our brain uses the same amount of power as a 10-watt light bulb. Our body gives enough heat in 30 minutes to boil 1.5 litres of water. The ovum egg is the largest cell and the sperm is the smallest. But so is the atom. Stomach acid is strong enough to dissolve razor blades. Take a 10 to 30 minute walk every day and while you walk, smile. It's the ultimate antidepressant. Sit in silence for at least 10 minutes each day. And remember that you are too blessed to be stressed. Try to make at least three people smile each day. And when you wake up in the morning, pray to ask God's guidance for your purpose today. Eat more foods that grow on trees and plants and eat less food that's manufactured in plants. Drink green tea and plenty of water. Eat blueberries, broccoli and almonds. Don't waste your precious energy on gossip, energy vampires, issues of the past, negative thoughts or things you can't control. Instead, invest your energy in the positive present moment.
Envy is a waste of time. You already have all that you need. Each night before you go to bed, pray to God and be thankful for what you've accomplished today. And last but not least, help the needy, be generous, be a giver, not a taker. And just something else to make you smile. Just a couple of uh, funny stories. Norman is 89 years old. He's played golf every day since his retirement over 20 years ago. One day he arrives home upset. That's it, he tells his wife. I'm giving up golf. My eyesight is so bad that once I hit the ball, I can't see where the dang thing goes. His wife sympathises and makes him a hot cup of tea. As they sit down, she says, Why don't you take my brother with you and give it one last try? That's a terrible idea, he says. Your brother's 102 years old. How can he help? Well, he may be 102 years old, she says, but his eyesight is perfect. Norman figured he'd give it a try. So the next day, he heads off to the golf course with his brother-in-law. He tees up, takes a mighty swing and squints down the fairway. He turns to the brother-in-law and says, Did you see the ball? Of course I did, replied the brother-in-law. I've perfect eyesight. Where did it go? Where did what go? (laughs) And lastly, a man walks in a bar and the bartender asks, What will you have? And the man answers, A scotch on the rocks, please. The bartender hands him the drink and says, That'll be five pounds. What are you talking about? I don't owe you anything for this, the man replies. A lawyer sitting nearby and overhearing the conversation then says to the bartender, you know, he's got a point there. In the original offer, which constitutes a binding contract upon acceptance, there was no stipulation of remuneration. The bartender says to the guy, okay, you beat me for this one, but don't ever come back here again. A few days later, the same man walks into the bar. And the bartender says, what do you think you're doing in here? I can't believe you've got the audacity to come back. And the man says, what are you talking about? I've never been in this place in my life. The bartender replies, I'm very sorry, but this is uncanny. I feel like you were here a few days ago. You must have a double. To which the man replies, thank you, make it a scotch. And now a nostalgic look at one of Worcester's famous buildings, the Shire Hall. The Shire Hall is now part of the Central Courts complex in the city where the Crown Court sits every day. But it wasn't always like that, and in the area where the building was the headquarters of the Worcestershire County Council before it relocated to County Hall in Spetchley Road, the court was in much less use. County magistrates' courts were held on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but the higher courts only sat a few times a year. It was a big occasion when a county court judge turned up and moved into the judge's lodgings, the accommodation that was especially provided for visiting judges at the rear of the building behind the courtrooms. The lodgings had been furnished by Worcestershire County Council and when it vacated the Shire Hall in 1979, it offered the furniture to the incoming Department of the Environment, which was taking over the responsibility for the building. However, the offer was declined and the furniture went up for auction. These photographs, accompanied with this article, 
show some of the items that would have been in the sale. There's a bijou room for the clerk of the court with a small desk and a bed. And then there's a main bedroom with two single beds and the upstairs sitting room as well in the judge's lodgings. There were his and hers beds, no doubt just to ensure that his honour would have a good night's sleep the night before he's sitting in the, in the, in the court. The drop-leaf tables and the rather, large, the rather large oval and rectangular coffee tables didn't seem to fit. I'm not sure what went in their place because I don't recall the press being allowed into the judge's lodging since. Also in 1976, there was the departure of the assistant hall keeper, Harold Green, after 26 years' service. Among his many duties, Harold had to stop unauthorised motorists using the Shy Hall car park during the judge sittings. One day, a strange car entered the privileged areas, parked and the driver got out and quickly walked away. But Harold Green spotted him and called out, Oi, you can't park there. And came the reply, Oh, yes, I can. I'm the judge. Even at the height of the First World War, in this case, May 1917, there were still many letters to the editor of the Times on the subject of votes for women. Here's one. Sir, Mrs Humphrey Ward disputes the authority of the present House of Commons to deal with the question of women's suffrage. She seems to have forgotten that at the time of the last general election, the subject was already prominently before the country. The majority of members more or less pledged to the women of their constituencies to support it, and Mr Asquith had given a definite assurance if his party returned to power, the matter should be dealt with exactly as it is proposed to deal with in the present bill by a free vote in the House of Commons. Mrs Ward prophesies the age limit of 30 for women voters will not be long maintained. She says nothing of the much more important barrier against complete equality, that is, by basing the men's vote on residence and the women's on occupation. The effect of this and the age limit together will be that men voters will be in an overwhelming majority in every constituency in the country. If, therefore, as women hope and believe will be the case, the franchise should be further extended and eventually placed on a basis of complete equality, it can only be because men are willing for it, having become convinced by experience of its actual working that the effect will be beneficial and not harmful. She says also nothing at all of the argument which, perhaps more than any other, has moved many of the most weighty and inveterate opponents of former years now to give the bill their active support. In what sort of position will Parliament be placed when the time comes at the end of this war to redeem the pledges given to trade unionists if women are still outside the pale of the franchise? Legislation will be necessary, involving probably, as Mr Asquith has pointed out, large displacements of female labour, Will it be to the credit or dignity of Parliament it should be open to the charge of bartering away the interests of non-voters in order to protect those of its constituents? The chief argument of Mrs Ward's letter is the physical suffering and sacrifices of women in the present war are not comparable with those of men. 
Well, this is undeniable. Women have not based their claims to vote on their sufferings or their services. They've never asked for it as a reward for doing their obvious duty to the country. The vote, after all, is not a sort of dear, so it's merely the symbol of the responsibilities of ordinary citizenship, which requires everyone to serve the country according to the measures of his or her opportunity and to make sacrifices for it if the call for that comes. Is physical suffering and sacrifice the only kind that counts? I saw recently a letter from a young wife whose husband had just fallen. She wrote, After all, we have nothing to regret. If it were all to come over again and we knew what would happen, he would go just as cheerily as before. And God knows, I would not hold him back. There spoke the authentic voice of the women of this country, women who have it in their blood and bones, the traditions of our imperial race. In time of peace, they may have been bemused by the false doctrine taught by Mrs Ward and her school that these national questions are matters for men, not women. But in time of war, instinct reasserts itself. We women feel as patriots and as citizens, and our citizenship so manifests itself it compels recognition in the traditional form for which women have asked so long by granting of the parliamentary vote. Yours faithfully, Eleanor F. Rathbone. Now, Eleanor Rathbone was a leading campaigner for women's rights and social reform, including the introduction of child benefit. She eventually became an MP in 1929, 11 years after women were finally given the vote and the right to be elected to Parliament. And that brings us to the end of this month's magazine, but I'd like to leave you with a thought that a kiss stimulates 29 muscles and chemicals that cause relaxation. So let's raise our glasses to romance. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we have enjoyed reading from Sue, Carol, Brian, Nigel and myself. Until next time, cheerio.